Welcome to episode 13 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. Just a quick note before we get started. There will be no new episodes next week for Election Day, so you can all go out and vote. But we'll be returning the following Tuesday with two new episodes, so please stay tuned. When we weren't rehearsing our rap verses or plotting a takeover of the music industry, my friend Paul and I spent a lot of time doing a kind of research, though to a casual observer, such research might have looked an awful lot like hanging out. We made daily pilgrimages to the video store to rent not only seminal hip-hop movies like Wild Style, Crush Groove, and Beat Street, but also cult films like Ralph Bakshi's R-rated cartoon classic Hey Good Lookin', and low-budget slasher flicks like Crazy Fat Ethel, Microwave Massacre, and I Dismember Mama. Paul's father was something of a connoisseur of terrible movies, and this expertise was passed down to Paul, who even at 14 years old, probably could have written a book on the subject. Paul and I also loved a particular Nintendo game called Base Wars, a futuristic baseball game set in the 24th century, in which opposing teams populated by cyborgs battle to the death to determine the outcome of particular plays. No one seems to remember Base Wars. On one especially dull summer evening, Paul discovered that the demo version of the game randomly generated different winners and losers each time it played, and so, being bored, we did the only logical thing. We began letting the demo version of the game cycle over and over again so we could bet on its various outcomes. This we often did for hours at a time, Chairs were frequently overturned in fits of righteous anger during these vicarious contests. Kids, these were very different times. Mostly, though, Paul and I spent our days discovering and debating music. Our affinities seemed to run in parallel. On rare occasions when our opinions diverged, they did so not on generalities but on minutia. We would agree, for instance, on the excellence of a given rap group, but we would disagree about which of that group's MCs was the best on the mic. We learned about other music, too, in tandem, though Paul always seemed a few steps ahead of me in this regard. He was the first of us to appreciate reggae, the first to appreciate jazz fusion, and much later, the first to appreciate the prog rock of Yes, Gentle Giant, and King Crimson. Though my meager disposable income was increasingly earmarked for hip-hop records, I still listened to a lot of other music. I really loved New Order, The Jesus and Mary Chain, and Teenage Fan Club, and was delighted to see the latter band paired up with one of my favorite MCs, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, for 1993's ubiquitous Judgment Night soundtrack. Nirvana had become huge, but their overnight success wasn't for me quite the pivotal Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment it appears to have retrospectively become for many of my peers. I liked Nirvana fine, but actually preferred and still prefer, their rivals, Smashing Pumpkins, whose sound hewed more closely to things I already loved, the deep and earnest mystery of The Cure's grand disintegration, mixed with the guitar tones and textures of heavy metal. Paul, on the other hand, was largely unmoved by modern alternative music, and often teased me about listening to it. Over the years, Paul and I would frequently audition third members for both our rap group Rebellious Knowledge and our exclusive Gang of Two. We never discussed or acknowledged this vetting process, but to do so was unnecessary. We had the exact same tastes, and were becoming increasingly discerning about who we allowed into our circle. 
Like a sort of hip-hop Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, we spoke in a kind of exclusive muso code. Third parties came and went, each of them failing to live up to our brutally unreasonable expectations. We auditioned a schoolmate named Michael, who told us that he liked reggae and knew how to toast. Michael boasted that he was personally acquainted with the then very popular rap duo Criss Cross, which should have been an immediate red flag, and which we later found out was a complete fabrication. That said, reggae hooks and hip-hop were becoming very popular, and Paul and I loved the sing-song, reggae-inspired hip-hop of Poor Righteous Teachers, so we decided against our better judgment to give Michael a shot. Before we allowed him to hear any of our music, Paul and I quizzed Michael on his favorite reggae records. You like Burning Spear? asked Paul. Blank stare from Michael. Eka Mouse? Yellow Man? Bujubantan? Supercat? Uh... Paul and I eyed each other knowingly. With a sigh, one of us finally asked, Shaba Ranks? Michael's eyes lit up. Yeah, yeah, Shaba Ranks! It was just as we feared. No disrespect to the great Shaba Ranks, but he was the era's most popular and visible reggae artists, and Michael's was the most basic answer he could have given. It was like trying out for a punk band having only heard a few Ramones songs. Michael didn't get the job. Such excruciating scenes would repeat many times over the years, each one depressingly similar. Paul and I shared a connection that we found difficult to adapt to others. Many third wheels came and went, leaving either because Paul and I quit returning their calls when we got tired of explaining to them who Lord Finesse was, or because these prospective members of our gang grew disillusioned when they realized that all Paul and I really wanted to do was buy records and write raps. I mean, that was it. Paul and I embraced the art form like fanatics, and if a hip-hop single was released between 1991 and 1994, we heard it, memorized it, and debated it. My grandmother had the previous summer taught me how to play poker, and I in turn taught Paul. Poker became something of a new hobby for us, and we'd occasionally invite other kids from the neighborhood to join us in the basement for a few hands. Somewhere along the way, we learned the word misdeal. Now, if you've ever played poker or know anything about the game, you know that a misdeal is a very rare occurrence, usually the result of a dealer mistakenly dealing the incorrect number of cards due to the cards sticking together, or inadvertently dealing a card face up. Basically, it almost never happens. For us, the word became a kind of magical loophole, a way of protesting any hand we didn't like. The way it worked was this. When a person, usually me or Paul, was dealt a hand they didn't find particularly inspiring, that person would obstinately find some trivial excuse to call a misdeal. Say, the cards are sticky, or I didn't see you shuffle, and slapping the cards down on the table shout, misdeal! At this, either the dealer or the player who had previously held a potentially winning hand, again, usually me or Paul, would fly into a rage, attacking the accuser with a pool cue or any other object at hand that could be repurposed as a weapon. Tables were flipped and foreheads were gashed in these melees, which soon perversely became a regular part of the game, something you just learn to expect and even anticipate. Challenges and arguments over gameplay were decided with violent confrontation, just like in Base Wars. Meanwhile, just upstairs, Nanny sang along to show tunes on her player piano, oblivious to the orgy of violence occurring just a floor below. Fights between me and Paul could quickly turn vicious, 
In a row over the rightful owner of the y'all-so-stupid cassette maxi-single Van Full of Pakistans, Paul grabbed a bar of ivory soap from the basement bathroom and slammed it with all of his might into my face, breaking my nose. In retaliation, I produced a box cutter and I slashed his arm, leaving a permanent scar. On another occasion, though I no longer recall the specific details that led to the incident, Paul earned the distinction of being the only person who has ever knocked me unconscious, having swung a Jansport backpack full of hardcover textbooks at the back of my head. It's probably no coincidence that most of these fights ceased for good a year or so later, when we both began dating girls. It's also important to remember that at this time, despite rapping about dismembering politicians and vanquishing imaginary rival MCs, we were still very much kids, with all the residual innocence associated with children. Paul's favorite movie was The Warriors, so when we found a snail in the basement, we named it Cyrus, after the film's charismatic and ill-fated gang leader, and we adopted Cyrus as our group's official mascot. Cyrus occupied this position for exactly one day. The following morning we found that little Cyrus, like his filmic namesake, had at some point in the night left us to join the choir invisible. This severely bummed us out. I was still receiving an allowance of $7 a week. This was easy money earned for doing little more than avoiding getting arrested or expelled from school. I could usually cajole my grandmother into giving me an additional $5 to mow the lawn or tend to some other domestic chore. Combined, this was more than enough to purchase an album. Paul didn't receive an allowance. His family had very little money. His parents didn't own a car, didn't even have their own bedroom, and slept on a fold-out sofa in the living room. Paul regularly dined on mayonnaise sandwiches and pasta with butter, some of which was delivered by local church charities. My father was a civil servant and my mom was a homemaker and part-time paralegal, which defined our family, at least in Staten Island terms, as decidedly middle class. But Paul would insultingly call me Richie Rich because my parents owned two cars and could afford to send me and my sister to day camp. Receiving an allowance was to Paul as remote a concept as receiving a Nobel Prize. Too young for legitimate part-time jobs, Paul and I were forced to be industrious. During the winter months, we dragged shovels door-to-door offering our services, clearing the snow from residential sidewalks and pathways. In the fall, we raked leaves. When feeling especially desperate or particularly reckless, we would locate a street corner game of dice, where we could occasionally get lucky and manage to double or even triple our money by shooting CeeLo with the various local hoods, who were just as likely to rob us as pay up. One of our favorite fundraising ideas was to bag groceries at the local supermarket Waldbaums. Without asking permission, we would just walk into the grocery store, locate an empty or nearly empty display box of chewing gum at the checkout counter, set it at the end of the line as a tip jar, and then just proceed to bag groceries. We did this for hours. The cashiers didn't mind our freelancing because we made their jobs that much easier by obviating their need to scan and bag every item. And unless a customer complained about our being there, we were free to remain as long as we liked. In an hour or so, you could make as much as $10 doing this. Yes, it was very weird. Soon, Waldbaums introduced new rentable shopping carts. You've probably seen these at stores like Aldi. They're very common now. These carts required a refundable 25-cent coin to operate. Each buggy came equipped with a mechanism that, when you inserted a quarter, it released a lock. When you returned the cart, you'd retrieve the quarter. This was a way of encouraging shoppers to return their buggies. 
Though most shoppers dutifully returned the carts, Paul and I noticed that they were less inclined to do so on rainy days, when two bits seemed hardly worth getting soaked in a downpour. So on days when the forecast was bad, Paul and I would spend the entire afternoon racing around the Waldbaum's parking lot, drenched, corralling shopping carts, and claiming the forsaken quarters inside. We'd do this until each of us had enough money to buy a new album, at which time we would walk, still sopping wet, the eight-mile round trip to the mall and back. The bus, which cost just $1.15 each way, was an exorbitant and unthinkable expense. We would spend the long journey to the mall plotting and planning our new material, and giddily discussing what we planned to buy when we finally arrived at the Whiz or Coconuts. Walking beneath the overpass on the corner of Richmond Avenue and Arthur Kill Road, we would occasionally see a new piece by Echo or Lore, or some other local graffiti celebrity. Occasionally we'd run into members of the Hood Squad, but fortunately these run-ins were infrequent enough to not dissuade us from our quest. Paul and I were tagging with more frequency, as graffiti was tightly connected to the music we loved so much. It was, after all, one of the four foundational elements of hip-hop, and it was also a really fun way to kill an afternoon. We pored like hungry scholars over the books Spray Can Art and Subway Art, which contained not only written histories of graffiti, but hundreds of full-color photos of pieces from as far away as Paris. As with the rappers we admired, Paul and I developed affinities for specific graffiti artists, and we spent hours arguing their relative merits. Almost everyone we knew had a black book, which served as a catalog of not only local graffiti artists you knew, but, more importantly, which ones knew you. Fledgling graffiti writers collected the customized pages of their graph elders, the way our fathers might have hoped to get a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth. I was a terrible graffiti artist who could not even manage to master the bubble letters required for a throw-up. If you missed the last episode, a throw-up is a small signature piece done in a hurry, usually in a high-traffic area. But yes, terrible, and to this day I can barely draw a straight line. Anyway, we were usually unable to acquire spray paint. The hardware stores began locking the seductive cans of Rust-Oleum and Krylon in glass cases, wise to the preponderance of teenagers seeking to, quote, rack cans. So Paul and I would content ourselves with thick Magnum markers and Kiwi brand shoe polish dispensers. For both of these instruments, some modification was required, much as the spray nozzle on a can of Krylon had to be modified into a fat cap using a lighter and a safety pin. For the markers, we would rub the slanted tips against the pavement until they were flat and slightly mashed, which gave the tip of the marker a bold, spray-paint-like quality. It even dripped a little if you pressed hard enough. The Kiwi brand shoe polish, which came in brown, white, and black, was even better. Using the attached 1-inch foam applicator pad, you can control with the pressure of your hand the flow of the thin, waxy liquid, which provided a certain amount of textural variety. If you tagged your name in white shoe polish on a blue municipal mailbox just right, it could be read from blocks away. It looked really cool. Paul was always up for a little light vandalism, but we wisely stopped short of engaging in other mischief like pushing dumpsters down the back steps of local businesses or setting fires in the woods, activities in which a lot of our less scrupulous acquaintances often engaged. Okay, we definitely did set a few fires, but not like a lot of fires. Eltingville was a relatively safe neighborhood, though the various guidos and hoods who seemed to mill about in front of every delicatessen or liquor store always meant danger. 
Kids in my neighborhood seemed forever hellbent on trying to prove that Staten Islanders were as tough as their counterparts in Brooklyn or the Bronx. The so-called forgotten borough has always had something of a Napoleon complex. Because of this, Paul and I preferred to hang out in Great Kills. Unlike Annadale, where Paul lived, and the turf of the Pompeii Posse, or Eltingville, where I lived, and the turf of the Hood Squad, there was little to no major gang presence in Great Kills, and the chances of being robbed or beaten up were small. Public School 8 was a small elementary school whose schoolyard had a large basketball court, where we'd often spend summer mornings. Whenever we grew bored of shooting hoops, Paul and I would always head directly to the Fame Elevator. Now I need to explain what the Fame Elevator is. To see the Fame Elevator, you would enter a nondescript and somewhat dilapidated four-story multi-purpose office building and take the elevator up to just between the second and third floors. Once there, you could manually, and with very little effort, stop the elevator and part the doors to discover an entire wall of fame full of tags between the floors including many well-known neighborhood names. Now, who originally discovered this secret spot and how, I will never know. But the fame elevator became a necessary pilgrimage in these days before constant surveillance. Paul and I would occasionally attend hip-hop shows in Manhattan and Brooklyn, sometimes finding ourselves in a bit over our heads. For one thing, we were almost always the youngest people in attendance. We were also white. When fights broke out between two rap battle contestants, as they often did, Paul and I would take cover until we could escape without being noticed, often running blocks to catch the nearest train home. We'd arrive home happy to be alive, but also full of adrenaline. Paul was becoming more and more interested in becoming a producer, and spoke of his plans to save up for DJ equipment or an MPC. He got a job at Burger King to do this. The local beatmakers who were now supplying our beats were mostly hacks, and Paul knew he could do better. Around this time, Hot 97 began broadcasting a new program called The Mike Check Show. Hosted by legendary rap crew The Furious Five, The Mike Check Show was a live call-in program that provided a platform for amateur rappers to test their metal. Any MC could call up and rap on the air, along to a beat provided by the esteemed hosts, who then evaluated the caller's rhymes. Me and Paul and many of our friends tuned in religiously to the program, listening as the Furious Five dispensed to hopeful rhyme spitters occasional praise, but more often, light ridicule. To be clowned on the air by this famous crew was a humiliation worthy of seppuku, but to earn their approval was as affirming an endorsement as any young MC could hope for. My mission was clear. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends about The Toth Zone. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Remember, no episode next Tuesday, so you can go and vote if you haven't already. But we'll return on the 10th. In episode 14, I'll tell you all about the Wu-Tang Clan and how they put Staten Island on the map in more ways than one. And also about my own Shaolin style and its effectiveness, according to rap legends The Furious Five. Do I have a recording of my on-air performance to play you? I just might. Tune in and see. Till then, take it easy. This is The Toth Zone. Toth Zone.